All right, tonight, read the title with me. It sounds great, doesn't it? Demonic Terrors. Let me talk to you for just a moment about God's judgment. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to talk to you about the judgment of God before we get into the text tonight, because a lot of people hear this on the book of Revelation, and you go, why would God do that? I don't understand judgment. Let me tell you something. This generation does not understand judgment. This generation does not like judgment. This generation thinks they ought to be able to do whatever they want and get away with it. But you can't do it. That's not God's universe. So let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will minister tonight the Word of God to our hearts. That, Lord, you will open up these powerful passages. Lord, give us a sense of where we are in time and in the prophetic timetable. Help us, Lord, to redeem the time because the days are evil. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Now, will you breathe a prayer to heaven's saints and say, Tonight, Lord, speak to me. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, perk up and listen, you're going to need this. All right, let me talk to you about the judgment of God. What does the Bible say about the judgment of God? If you just kind of watch the news and have your finger on the pulse of our generation at all, a great majority of people abhor the thought that the God of love could also be the God of wrath. We just don't get that in this generation. But one cannot read the Bible without encountering the judgment of God. You can't read your Bible without it. In Genesis, he judged Adam and Eve and doled out consequences for their sin. He judged the people of Noah's day with the great flood. He judged the people of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven. That's the account of the Bible. And by the way, that has been proven archaeologically. Sodom and Gomorrah and places like that have been discovered, found, never inhabited again after God's judgment of those places. And in Revelations, what we're seeing tonight and all through this book is the full wrath of God is poured out on a Christ-rejecting, unrepentant world. I want to tell you something, church. The wrath of God is coming on this world. We don't like to hear that. Well, God's a God of love, and we're all kind of squishy with it and, you know, sloppy agape and all of that. But let me tell you, he's a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And so let's look at that. Facts about God's judgment. The holiness of God necessitates the judgment of God. Why does he judge? Because he's holy. A.W. Tozer writes, quote, God's first concern for his universe is its moral health. Now, I want you to say something with me tonight. God is a moral God. See, he made you in his image. And he stamped on your nature his law. He wrote his law on your conscience. Your conscience came from God. And what does your conscience tell you? There's a right and a wrong, a good and a bad, a light and a dark. There's moral and immoral. Where'd you get that, agnostic friend? Where'd you get that, atheist friend? You got that from God. Well, it's because God is a moral God. And his first concern is for the moral health of his universe. So to preserve his creation, God must destroy what would destroy his universe. Secondly, God is always fair, always fair and right in judgment because his nature is absolutely perfect. Abraham asked a rhetorical question 
of the angels just before they went down into Sodom to judge it. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And God did right. What did he do? He removed the righteous from the wicked, and then he brought his wrath down on those cities. He's the same today. He's going to remove the righteous, the saved, the redeemed from this wicked world. Then the great tribulation will strike and judgment falls. It's exactly the same. The answer to the question is, yes, he always does right. Jesus is himself, the appointed judge. Did you know that? He's the Lamb of God, walking around saying great things, died on the cross. They beat him, whipped him, plucked out his beard, killed him. But when he comes back, he's going to judge the entire world. Jesus said, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So all judgment is entrusted to Jesus Christ. He's the one that is bringing to pass what we're seeing in Revelations. He's the one that opened the seven seals. He's the one overseeing all of it. Here's another reason for God's judgment. He judges in order to place a restraint on evil. If God did not bring judgment on sin, the world would collapse into chaos tonight. You can't see it. I can't see it. That is visibly, but right now the Holy Spirit all over the world is restraining sin and restraining wickedness. You say, Boy, what would it be like if he wasn't restraining it? Because it's pretty wicked right now. It would be unlivable. It would self-destruct in a night. But he restrains evil by judging people and things. The Lord prefers mercy to judgment. It says in James, mercy rejoices over judgment. God would rather have mercy. He's compassionate. He's long-suffering, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But because judgment is often delayed in time, many people assume God will never judge us. And that's the danger. You think that God's long-suffering is God saying, I don't care. But God's long-suffering is to give you a chance to repent. But there will come a time when the long-suffering runs out. When God does move in judgment, He is thorough, and as we're seeing in Revelations, even ruthless. He's ruthless. So, dear friend, if you're living in sin, and it seems like everything's just going fine with you, and a little voice is saying to you, well, you know, God didn't care. All that church stuff wasn't real. Look at what I'm doing and getting away with it. It doesn't seem like God cares at all. Believe me. Trust me. His long-suffering is in hopes that you repent. Don't mistake his long-suffering for his approval. Because the day will come, if you don't repent, God's going to chase you, take you out to the woodshed out back. And believe me, you don't want to be in God's woodshed. Now, last time, let's go to Revelations. Everybody understand about judgment? God knows what he's doing. And what we see happening in Revelations is God pouring out judgment on a world that wouldn't repent if he gave him a thousand years. So let's look. Last time we looked at the fifth seal open and saw a multitude of the souls of martyred tribulation saints underneath the altar in heaven. There's those souls. John saw the souls who had been martyred. They're under the altar in heaven. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the justice of God to be meted out on those that killed them. They're saying, how long, Lord, before you avenge us? 
And they were told, there's still some more that are going to be martyred. And when that martyrdom is done, I'm going to avenge you. But it's not finished yet. So when the sixth seal then was opened, cosmic catastrophes poured forth. John said in Revelation 6.12, the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The sun blotched out. The moon red. Meteorites falling from the skies. It says the stars in the sky, asteros, meteorites, fell to the earth. Instead of burning up by gravity before striking the earth, these make it to the earth. They fall to the earth like late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. That means a lot of them, a bunch of them. Meteorites begin to strike this planet. The sky recedes like a scroll rolling up. And every mountain, everybody say every with me. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Something catastrophic begins to happen when these martyred saints in heaven say, Lord, how long? And God says, a few more need to be martyred, and then I'm going to avenge you. And then that sixth seal is open. And when that sixth seal is open by the Lord Jesus, these catastrophes begin to strike the planet. And it is awesome in a bad way, in a horrible way. It's awesome. I hate it because I love God's creation. But every mountain and every island, it is so catastrophic, these meteorites striking the earth and earthquakes and whatnot, that every mountain, every island literally shifts and is moved. Then in chapter 7, we encountered 144,000 Jewish believers, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Remember them? They are witnesses during the tribulation period. And I don't know if you can see it on this graphic. All of this is those believers. We found the best graphic we could. I know it looks like a cloud, but it's really people lifting their hands, praising God. There are witnesses during the tribulation period. 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams are sharing the word during the great tribulation. And chapter 8 showed us an innumerable number of redeemed Gentile believers the fruit of their incredible ministry. I know what somebody's thinking. Well, Pastor Jeff, if you can get saved in the tribulation, man, I'm just going to wait till then. I promise you, you do not want to wait until then, and you may never repent if you wait. That's just a lie of the devil. Most people would say, well, I'm just going to wait until a better time. That time never comes. Here's the phrase that sends more people to hell than any single thing. Someday. And in chapter 8, the seventh seal is open, which portends the blowing of the seven trumpets of God. And that is an awesome moment. The first four trumpets bring total destruction to earth's ecology. Remember that? At the close of chapter 8, after the four trumpets have blown, the first four of the seven trumpets, we read, Then I looked and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. What did it say? Preach it to me, everybody. Terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. All right, let's look at the fifth trumpet. The first, terror. Revelations 9.1 says the fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. Now I want to point something out about this star. Two things about it. First, 
It is a star that has already fallen. Can you look at the verse again? The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. He didn't see it fall. It had already fallen. And John is not watching it fall, but he's noting that it was already a done deal. Second thing about the star, the language places this star in the masculine gender. Asteros, O-S, is the masculine ending in Greek. Omicron, Sigma, O-S. That's masculine. So this star is not an it, but it's a he. Obviously, this star is Satan himself. I know that picture scared me too when I first looked at it. This star falling, everybody, that John is witnessing falling when the fifth trumpet is blown, this star he sees plummeting, having already plummeted, it's a done deal. History back here, it's Satan himself. Remember when Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. John is talking about the same thing. He goes on to say in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the star, the devil, was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. He sees this masculine creature with a key to the abyss, which is hell. He sees him open the abyss, and out comes this smoke, out comes this horrific scene. The bottomless pit, you say, well, what is the abyss? The abyss is the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit is the abode of demons. According to Luke 8.31, the demons told us what the abyss is because it says they kept begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss or the bottomless pit because that is the abode of demons in the spirit world. They said, please, we'd rather inhabit anything, even pigs, than be sent to this abyss. Did you know that the Bible says that Antichrist, the man, also comes out of the bottomless pit? He ascends from this abyss where demons dwell. Listen to what it says, Revelation 11, 7. When they, that is God's two witnesses, and we'll talk about them a little bit later, But when they complete their testimony, look what it says, the beast. Well, who's the beast? Antichrist. The beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. Where does the Antichrist come from? The bottomless pit. He ascends from the bottomless pit. As Jesus was the Son of God, Antichrist is the son of the devil. Jesus came down from heaven the Antichrist comes up from hell. So the opening verse of chapter 9 presents Satan as having the key to the pit of the abyss with power to release those who are confined there. He had the power to release demon spirits from this abyss. And I want you to look at what came out of it as John watched in horror and stunned amazement as he sees this star open up the abyss. Look what he sees coming out of it. He says, creatures that look like locusts, verses 3 and 5. And out of the smoke that arose from the abyss, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, 
but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. God knows those that are His, and He knows those who are not. And when judgment begins to fall, believe me, those who are His are marked, and those who are not are marked. These locust creatures, as we're about to see, are supernatural. And they cannot touch one of the 144,000 of the Jewish Billy Grahams. They were not given power to kill man. See, they couldn't touch the ecology. The ecology has already been massively destroyed in the opening of the seals. So this is not about the ecology, it's about people. They were not given power to kill people, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. But you cannot die. As soon as the mouth of the pit is open, a thick blackness issues from it like the black smoke of a great furnace. This blackness fills the air and obscures the sun. Out of the smoky blackness emerges creatures never before seen on earth. Steven Spielberg could not think this up. Neither could George Lucas. This is not some fantasy, myth, fable. This is not a bunch of symbology that just means something else. He's telling us that horrific, demonic creatures are released upon the earth during the Great Tribulation. They are told you can't kill men, but you can torture men. And they go out, and they look, and anybody that doesn't have the mark falls prey to them, the mark of God, the seal of God, falls prey to them. It says, they're horrible in shape, they're evil in character, they're armed with power to torment men's bodies without killing them. Their description is bizarre. Let's look at the description of these creatures. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads, and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like women's hair, and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore a breastplate made of iron. Their wings roared like an army of chariots. Sounds like a helicopter. Their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions, and for five months they had power to torment people. You remember what I told you at the beginning of this series? John is a first century man looking at 21st century events. He's never seen a gun. He's never seen a firearm much less high-level technological military weaponry. He's looking at these things going, well, this is what it looks like to me because this is what I know. So it was like this and like that and as this and as that. He's searching and groping for the words to describe what he's seen. So here's what he comes up with. It's a locust. What is a locust? If you study about the attack of a locust, say, on a wheat field, they are unrelenting, they are destructive, and they are ruinous. The worst sight to a farmer in, say, the 1800s, 1700s, or through all of time, was a cloud of locusts coming towards your field because they would land on it and strip it bare, unrelenting, destructive, ruinous. He said, these creatures look like locusts. He's drawing a parallel to that. He says, they look like horses as well, strong, powerful. That's what a horse is, strong and powerful and fearful in combat. Crown of gold, what does that mean? Attractive, possessing authority. Crowns always have to do with authority. 
faces of men. In other words, they were intelligent. I told you, we looked at in Revelations how when something has the face of a man, it's speaking to intelligence. They had faces of men, these creatures, meaning intelligent, willful beings. Hair of women, once again, attractive, disarming. Teeth of a lion. They overpower and they destroy. This is what he saw coming up out of the abyss. Breastplates of iron. That's picturesque of indestructible. The breastplates of iron in the ancient world were considered to be the best piece of defensive equipment. If this indicates they cannot be defeated. And the only defense against them is fellowship with the Lord. Hallelujah. I tell you what, you see one of these things coming? You're praising God. Hallelujah. Sound of chariots. What is that? Frightening, overpowering. The noise going into battle when chariots are involved is awesome. It paralyzes their victims with fear. Okay. Oh, they had a sound effect for me. I thought God was amen in me. I said, it's not raining out there. Okay. You got me, Jeff. I said, wow, the Lord's really here. All right. <laughs> sound of chariots. That's good. And that's what they would sound like coming at you. So do you see audio, the sound of them is terrifying. The sight of them is bizarre. They are destructive. They are overpowering. They are unrelenting. These creatures that came out of the pit. You really want to be there and see if you're going to get saved then? Tales of scorpions inflicting massive Painful torment. Powerful stuff, y'all. I'm just reading the book to you. How many of you are glad you've got the seal of God on you? John calls these creatures locusts. <laughs> but they are supernatural. They are supernatural. My folks, do you see that they have a good time with this? I said, get together some graphics for me. They've just gone crazy. I'm surprised real locusts didn't come flying in. Now, notice, seriously, John calls these creatures locusts, but they are supernatural in their origin. Unlike the former plagues that decimate the Earth's ecology, these diabolical creatures only afflict men. And they are released during the Great Tribulation by the devil himself. Revelations 10 verse 11 says their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon or Abaddon. In Greek, it's Apollyon, meaning the destroyer. Apollyon actually means the exterminator. That's what it means. Abaddon means destruction. Well, who in the world is that talking about? That's talking about the devil. Jesus said he only came to kill, steal, and to destroy. And so he's the one who opens up this abyss. He is given the key. He's allowed by God to do it. And out comes these creatures, and they exterminate, and they destroy. Now, how bad will this trumpet judgment be of the locust creatures? 
It says in chapter 9, verse 6, During those days men will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Isn't that terrible? What a terrible thing. They'll want to die. Death will be merciful, but they won't be able to do it. Revelation 9, 12 says, One woe is past. That's just the fifth trumpet. And behold, there comes two woes more hereafter. Here's the sixth trumpet. Four angels are gathered at the Euphrates River. I want you to say with me right now. Right now, there are four angels gathered at the Euphrates River waiting for the command of God to do what we're about to read. They are there right now. Revelations 9, 13 and 14. It says, And the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. And here comes a voice from the altar, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Loose those angels. Now remember that we said when we started this series that the events and revelations are chronological. It goes from seven seals to seven trumpets to seven bowls. We've gone through the seals. We're almost through with the trumpets. The bowls are worse than those two. But now, from time to time, John will jump forward or go backward in time in order to focus on a particular event. So though Revelations is chronological, there are times he'll jump forward out of chronological order or go back. Let me give you an example. For instance, Jesus is born in Revelations 12. But he's exalted in Revelations chapter 5. And he's walking in the midst of his churches in Revelations chapter 1. That is not in order, but that's the way John saw it. I'll give you another example. The beast who attacks God's two witnesses in chapter 11 is not brought into existence till chapter 13. So the beast who is attacking in chapter 11 doesn't even exist until chapter 13. So there are times God jumps him forward, sort of like back to the future. He jumps him forward, jumps him backward, and that's what's happening here. John wrote as it came to him. In Revelation chapter 9, he jumps forward and he talks about the Euphrates River, giving us a prelude to the Battle of Armageddon that is covered way more extensively in chapter 16. So we're taking a quick jump forward and shown a glimpse into something that will be coming in fullness in chapter 16. And it has to do with the battle of Armageddon, the worst battle in the history of mankind. So let's see what it says about it. The altar and the four horns. Now in verse 13, we're shown an altar. Four horns are constructed on its corners. A horn is always a sign of power. And recall that the altar is the place where the prayers of martyred saints are going up to God and they have power with God. Those prayers of the martyrs. God responds to their prayers by releasing further destruction. Okay? Now John sees four angels bound at the Euphrates River. And look at this. The Bible says they've been prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year. Say with me, God's a God of timing. And say with me, He's got the whole world in His hands. 
You look out there and it looks like the devil might be in charge, but I'm telling you, look at what it says about God. Stop and think about this. What a sovereign God we serve. If we were standing right now at the Euphrates River and could see into the spirit world, we would see these mighty four angels standing there waiting for their command from God. They are there right now. Well, what does all this mean? Well, the Euphrates River has always been a physical and psychological boundary between east and west. It's 30 to 40 feet wide and 20 feet deep. John says that these four angels will dry it up. Can God do that? Can he dry up a river that's 30, 40 feet wide, 20 feet deep? Can God dry it up? You better believe it. And what is he going to dry it up for when he tells these angels to be released? Why will it be dried up? It will make way for a 200 million man army. I didn't say 2 million. I didn't say 20 million. I said 200 million man army will cross that Euphrates from the far east when Armageddon commences. Interestingly, the government of Turkey in 1989 built the gigantic Ataturk Dam to control the Euphrates River, and it can now be dried up at the push of a button. There it is. I want to show you the dam. This is it. That's the dam right there. They can dry up that river. God will dry it up. And you're looking at the location where a 200 million man army will cross to engage in the Battle of Armageddon. Who will the army be comprised of, these 200 million people? No doubt the hordes of China and India, which are beyond the river Euphrates to the east. And we can't omit the Muslim nations of Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, and newly freed former countries within the old defunct Soviet Union, such as Kazakhstan. John goes on to tell the extent of human slaughter that's going to happen in Armageddon. This is a prelude. This is a glimpse. We're going to get into it way stronger later. But here's what he says is going to happen in chapter 9 as he jumps forward in time. The four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year. And what will happen? Slay the third part of men will be killed. Third part of men will be killed. When the sixth trumpet sounds, a third of human life will be destroyed. Now, John describes the warriors that crossed that river this way. He says in verse 17, And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth, and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. And out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. What is he talking about? Well, the color of fire is red. Jacinth or hyacinth is dark blue, and brimstone is earth yellow. With a few adjustments and mixture, these are the colors used in desert camouflage. See the camouflage in the background? That's the colors he saw. Want to see that again? Some of you are staring at that. That's what he saw. That's what he saw them wearing. Revelations 9, verses 18 and 19, by these three was the third part of men killed. How were a third of mankind killed? He says, by fire and smoke and brimstone. 
which issued out of their mouth. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Well, again, this is a first century man seeing 21st century things. John's description may depict cavalry weaponry. Again, he'd never seen a rifle, never seen a gun, never seen a cannon, never seen anything like we know of. Using fiery weapons of destruction, poison gas, and brimstone, which can be a description of colossal explosive power, such as nuclear bombs or bomb warfare. This is what the man was seeing. He just didn't have the verbiage that we do to describe it. They had not been invented yet. I believe this is accurate. Poison gas, brimstone, bombs, nuclear bombs. Many of the countries identified by Scripture now possess nuclear capability and the unleashing of it on the Asian continent could end in the slaughter of over a billion people. Folks, let me tell you, a man has never had a weapon he didn't use. Now, I'm not doom and gloom. Listen, Jesus said, when you see all these things coming to pass, you ought to lift up your head. Your redemption draws near. So this is bad news if you're outside of Christ. It's good news if you're in Christ because He is near even at the door. But this is what John saw. This is what he saw. Now we next encounter one of the most amazing and sad sights in all the Word of God. Even in spite of all the calamity and all the obvious judgments of God, all the terror and all the uncertainty, can you believe this? Men still refuse to repent. Can you believe that? That's why I tell you, when God judges, He knows what He's doing. He always judges in righteousness. He's never unfair. Revelation 9, 20 to 21 Look what it says. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, the two-thirds of people remaining, yet repented not of the works of their hands. Look what they were doing. Look what these people are doing that are come under this judgment. They should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood that can't see, hear, or walk. The people coming under this judgment are worshiping devils. They are totally ungodly, and they don't have a repentant bone in their body. If God left them here a thousand years, they would never repent because they don't repent with all of this going on. And the Revelation makes it clear they know that it's the judgment of God. Neither repented they of their murders. Look at this. They're murderers, sorceries nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. This is a bad bunch. Ripe for judgment. Now what is sorceries? Let me grab a few of these words. It says they're involved in sorceries. It comes from a Greek word, pharmakia. We get pharmacy from it. It means drugs or use of drugs. Do you know that that's sorcery? See, when you get into drugs, there is no better way for you to open the door to the abyss. There's no better way. Y'all look at me and smile a little bit. You're looking real serious. These people are involved in drug abuse. That's what it means when it says sorceries. That's why I tell you, you never need to try drugs. 
Don't ever touch a drug. That is an illegal drug. Any drug you don't need. I believe in prescribed drugs in certain situations, but otherwise, meth, the hallucinogenics, the addictives, cocaine, heroin, all these things, these are pharmakia, and they open the door to Satan. It is sorcery. If you want to open the hatchway to hell and ruin your life, then go ahead and do drugs. Because you won't be the same person. It'll gut you. It'll destroy you. It'll ruin you. It'll rob you of your life, rob you of your years, rob you of your money, rob you of your freedom. And look, the judgment of God comes because of this. You have the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Amen. You've got the Holy Spirit. And so you don't need these things. Get high on Jesus. Amen. I hate drugs with a purple passion. I hate them. I hate what they do to people. And alcohol is a drug. I thought I'd throw that out. Now let's go on. <laughs> idols. Look what it says. Idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see, hear, nor walk. We tend to think of idolatry as an Old Testament thing. You see, you kind of imagine these people sitting around bowing down to some wooden idol with a funny-looking face and worshiping it. And you're going, wow, that was way back then. But it's not. John saw it as extremely prevalent at the end of time, idolatry. Did you know that one half of the world right now, at least, is idolatrous? All of India, three-quarters of Africa, great pockets of South and Central America, all of Asia, including Japan, are practitioners of idolatry. What's idolatry? It's when you worship anything other than God. I'm going to say that again. Because all human beings are worshipers. God made you to be a worshiper. You're wired to worship. And let me just tell you the truth. If you don't worship the Lord, you're going to worship something. Because you're wired to worship. It's human to worship. You're going to worship. So let me show you. There's India, Hinduism. I don't know where that is, but it looks bad. Here's some idols. There we go. We're flashing through. Idols, idols. There's Buddhism worshiping that idol. Oh, freeze that one. Let's go back to that one. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, now come on. Oh, folks, we worship celebrities. We worship celebrities, and it's about to kill us as a nation. Can you go back? Is there any way to go back? They're trying. Okay, freeze it. Can you freeze it? There's our idols, just as some of them. Why well, do I worship them? Look at what's happening. My heart goes out to Michael Jackson. I'm serious. What an incredibly talented man. What a tragic figure. Died with pills half dissolved in his stomach. 112 pounds at 5'10". Desperate. But he was worshipped. We worship things other than God. And the Bible says that's idolatry. I don't worship any man. I don't worship anything. We worship rock groups. We worship politicians. We worship celebrities. They put their pants on one leg at a time just like you. They can't save you. Only one can save you. His name is Jesus. He's the only one that died for you.
Now let's, we're wrapping it up. Here comes the angel and the small scroll. Revelations 10 verse 1 says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. Who does that sound like to you? How is he described at the beginning of the book? Feet like brass, hair white as wool, eyes like fire. Isn't that what it said? And his face shone like the sun. This is Jesus here in chapter 10, verse 1. And as there was an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals, chapter 10 is an interlude between the sounding of the sixth and seventh trumpets. Chapter 10 and 11 are not only the middle of the book, but the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. So we're moving along at a good pace. Now watch this. This mighty angel is Christ himself. His features parallel the description of Jesus in chapter 1. Revelations 10, verse 2 and 4. Let's see what it says. In his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. What a mighty God. I mean, what a mighty God. What a powerful picture. Right foot on the sea, left foot on the land. And he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion, the lion of Judah. And when he shouted, seven thunders answered. Now this is going to bug you. It bugged me. And it bugged John. Because when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice say, keep secret what the seven thunders said and don't write it down. <laughs> I want to know. I really want to know. John died knowing. We don't know. While we do not know what the seven thunders said, it very likely had to do with the horrendous events that were about to come upon planet Earth. Are you ready for this? Time no longer. Revelations 10, 5 through 7. The angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. This is Jesus raising his right hand toward heaven, he swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and earth and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said, there shall be time no longer. Now, this is the Lord Jesus, one foot on land, one foot in the sea, raising his right hand, declaring time is done. History is about to be over. No more time. No more grains of sand falling through the hourglass. It's over. And when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It'll happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Seven is the Bible number for completion. As we draw near the blowing of the seventh trumpet, there's a growing sense that all things in God's timetable are about to be completed. The angel is informing John that time's about to be consummated, that the end time days here designated the days of the voice of the seventh angel indicates the last half of the tribulation will quickly occur. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week. The second half of the tribulation. And we're going to see the most important building in the world. Can we stand together?
You know, I want you to leave with this picture in your mind. Here's Jesus, who we worship, one foot in the sea, one foot on land, raising his right hand, time is over. Where does history end? With Muhammad? With Buddha? With Confucius? With Satan? No. The Son of God, time is over. That is powerful stuff, y'all. Can we worship the Lord Jesus tonight? Lord, we just see these events and we see the terrible calamities that are going to be coming on this earth. We thank you, Lord, that as you delivered Lot and his family from Sodom before judgment fell, a picture and a type of the rapture, you will deliver your people before this horrible seven-year time of judgment. We pray that, Lord, you will anoint Turning Point Church and every church that preaches Jesus Christ to bring in a huge harvest while the hour of grace is still upon us. Now, I want you to take a minute. As a matter of fact, I don't mean to embarrass you or make you uncomfortable, but can you take the hand of the person next to you? And I want to tell you, my heart is to see a huge harvest. How many of you can say, I could get a burden for souls after seeing this? Let's pray right now that God helps us to reach as many as we can, as fast as we can, and gives us a supernatural revival. Can we believe God for that? Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and we pray that you would give us an incredible breakthrough, that, Lord, we would see the Spirit of God sweep across this city, sweep across this country and this world, in a mighty gathering of believers, of newborn children of God. Now I want you to take a minute and say, Lord, I pray for, and I want you to fill in the blank, your neighbor, your children, your parents, name somebody, and let's believe God for their salvation.